Welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast from Wales Online. Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast from Wales Online. My name's Matt Southgoom and this afternoon I'm joined by Andy Howell and Simon Thomas. Good afternoon, Chad. Hello. You tell Hello. You. <laughs> Andy's yawning before we get started. I'll session in the gym before work, Matt. Never easy in the gym, is it? I wouldn't know. That's <laughs> <laughs> what you're doing. Uh, we've got lots to get through uh, on today's show, obviously, ahead of Judgment Day this weekend um, with all the Welsh derbies. Uh, we had a chat with Nigel Owens earlier this week. Um, it's his 150th Guinness Pro 12 slash Celtic League appearance uh, on Judgment Day when he takes charge of uh, Newport Gwent Dragons against Scarlets. Um, and then after that, we're going to discuss the games ourselves in a bit more detail, look at the playoff running. Um, Obviously, we've got the Ospreys and the Scarlets involved in that, and uh, maybe give a little prediction for Judgment Day. But uh, before we get into it, here's our chat with Nigel Owens. So, Nigel, thanks for joining us on the Welsh Rugby Podcast. Um, it's your 150th Celtic League slash Guinness Pro 12 game coming up at Judgment Day this weekend. Uh, it must be a very proud moment for you. Yeah, it is. Um, I didn't think much about it, to be honest. Um, you're obviously at, at the bottom of the Pro 12 game. Um, uh, match programme sometimes or you know when you look at the website when you're preparing for the game and you want to find out the, the, what team they picked and who's picking so you can do a bit of your you know pre-match stuff ready yeah. uh, it'll come up you know Nigel Owens referee 112th so I remember 126th game down there and then when I was out in uh, Trevise or Ospreys a couple of weeks ago Sam McDowell the TMO came into me after the gym and said oh it was 138th game uh, 148th game today and then I realised oh yeah and then I realised, you know, I was with Munster Glasgow then, weekend just gone, we were 149th, and I thought, well, if I'm refereeing Judgment Day, it'll fall on yeah. Judgment Day, and it'll be nice to, to referee at home in Wales for the change, because I've been out of the country the last eight weeks refereeing or officiating somewhere. So, uh, yeah, so, it, you know, yeah, I was quite aware of it then, you know, in the last couple of weeks was coming up. Like I, yeah. I think once you start refereeing to reach any milestones uh, or anything like that, then you're probably refereeing for the wrong reason, you know. Yeah. But when they do come along... It is something nice, and you've realised how long you've been in the game, and uh, unfortunately, you also realise that there's a lot less time <laughs> left than there's than there's been. So, yeah, I, I was quite aware of this. You know, in the last couple of weeks, it was coming up, and uh, it is something nice. You know, something to be proud of. Um, but I'm not refereeing. You know, to I'm not hanging on in there so I can reach milestones. But when <laughs> yeah. it does come along, it's it's nice and just you know to enjoy the occasion. And I I've, I've been involved in every Judgment Day since it started. So yeah. uh, something special about Judgment Day refereeing in Wales, the Welsh derbies. There's a little bit of extra something about it and. Uh, so I'm looking forward to, to, to the weekend I guess you, you probably don't get too many chances to referee in the Principality Stadium obviously because usually Wales are involved I don't um, the first time I refereed there um, would have been the old Welsh Cup I think it was the Swanley Cup back then was it the Principality Cup mm. um, Pontypridd against Neath James Hook was playing for Neath uh, it, regional rugby had started a couple of years before so jo- uh, James Hook was playing for Neath um, Di Flanagan was playing for Newport uh, sorry Di Flanagan was playing for Pontypridd and uh, Di Flanagan dropped the goal to win the game at the end of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the match uh, and that was the first time I refereed in the stadium but obviously you know a decent crowd for a, you know, for a club game in Wales then yeah, yeah. after the regional rugby over 20,000 then I think uh, but then I did the European Cup final there then in 2008 uh, between Munster and Toulouse, which was an electrifying atmosphere. You know, one of the best atmospheres I've, I've been at, especially at a club game. And then since then, obviously, I've done Judgment Day. Uh, I've done a couple of school finals here, Drew Shield finals as well. Um, yeah. But then internationals, um, I was very fortunate to referee for the first time the international in the World Cup when I did Ireland against France, which was an electric atmosphere then. Yeah. And I did the quarterfinal here then in New Zealand, France. So it was a, it was a wonderful occasion, really. Um, you know, I, <clears throat> I probably couldn't have picked a better World Cup to be involved in. Yeah. in doing the final in that World Cup as well you know the weather was great the rugby was great there were games in the stadium here and I refereed two of them uh, and it was it, it was just amazing to be part of it so yeah I, I've refed a couple of times in the stadium but mm. yeah, as you say I don't get much time to referee there but uh, when they do come along it's nice yeah, but it is the best stadium in the world there's no doubt about that of course um, when, the, when the Pro 12 put out a little press release to us about this being your 150th appearance they, get, they gave us a few stats I'll just run through them for you uh, briefly, 149 appearances in the Pro 12 so far. Um, puts you 60 ahead of, of the next best, which is George Clancy at the moment. Um, four four Celtic League finals, um, six red cards, 
uh, in European competition, 109 appearances, uh, 98 in the European Cup. That's five European Cup finals and two Challenge Cup finals. Uh, in the international arena, 76 tests, 17 Six Nations, uh, 12 Rugby Championship, uh, three World Cups we've been involved in, and obviously the World Cup final in 2015. You're making me sound good reading that, haven't you? I know, well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> when you see these stats, how does that make you feel when, when you listen to me reading those, you know? Well, I was part of that press release, obviously, you know, in, in, in quoting it and stuff, but yeah. I, I certainly didn't hand them the stats for sure. And I were, <laughs> But I've read it, obviously, when they sent me through what they were going to release in yeah. the press to check it all over, and I was actually reading the stats, and I thought, well, have I done this much? And I wasn't aware of a lot of those, especially some yeah. of you know, the red cards and stuff like that. Um, uh, and actually, when I did Leinster Wasps um, in the European Cup or in Dublin a fortnight ago, um, somebody made me aware of there that was my 98th uh, European Cup game. So I was aware of that, but a lot yeah. of the other stuff I wasn't aware of it. So, uh, yeah, I suppose, well, you know, I've, I've been about a long time, man. You know, <laughs> since I was 16 years of age, I'm coming towards the end of my 29th season. So if all is fit and well and I'm refereeing next season, when, yeah. when I start September, it'll be 30 years of refereeing. So uh, yeah. I've clocked up some uh, games and some mileages in those 30 years. But it is, um, yeah, it is It is nice, I suppose, when you look down and, and, and realise, you know, what what you've achieved, yeah. I guess, which is, you know, which which is nice. But as I said, you know, I'm not there to sort of crack up the stats and stuff like that. But, mm. you know, there's no doubt it can make you feel very proud, you know, when you look back and on how many games you refereed and stuff and pretty much remember nearly most of them really yeah we're we, we going to test uh, your memory slightly now um, in the same press release it was listed that your first game was on August the 30th in 2002 uh, and that was Border Reavers against Connaught is there much you can remember from that game? Um, that was my first Pro 12 game yeah, yeah um, my first actual professional game was Swansea against Caffili okay. Derek Bevan had finished in end of the season 2000 I took his place then on the panel, and my first game was a sunny afternoon down in Swansea. Swansea against Caffili. It was Gavin Henson's first game for Swansea oh, as well. Right. Yeah, my first professional game. <laughs> and then, as you quite rightly said, the first Pro 12 game, uh, the Celtic League, whatever it was back then, yeah. uh, was up in the borders. Yeah. Now I'm pretty sure. Um, I may not remember this was the actual game, but it was certainly in that season or the season after up in the borders. Uh, a guy running for line from you had the surname Hogg, oh. and it was uh, Stuart Hogg's dad. Okay. He was running touch for me, and I'm quite sure what it was that game. If it wasn't that game, it certainly was the next time I was in the borders, yeah. and Stuart Hogg was with him. Was as he? A, yeah, as a, as, as a young kid watching oh. watching his dad running the line for me, and uh, I was actually saw his dad after the Scotland-Italy game I was in touch of, and I hadn't seen his dad for years, and I was speaking to his dad then, and we were talking about... Uh, when you're ever touching me, and yeah. Stuart was 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 there with him, and Stuart was oh, there when no. I was talking that day as well. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, I do remember that that first game um, up in the borders because you know we, we were all excited. Um, I don't really get nervous, a little bit nervous when that game, but a bit more sort of uh, excitement than the nervousness. Really, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. sort of going up there to, to ref that game down in sort of in the, you know traditional heartland of rugby in Scotland. Yeah, really. yeah. It was it was a wonderful wonderful experience. Yeah, over the years and. Um, You've obviously come across many different characters in the game. Um, can you recall any of the more perhaps challenging players that you've had to manage uh, on the field? They're all challenging. <laughs> <laughs> um, the <clears throat> the captains tend to be the most challenging because still in rugby traditionally and, and thankfully quite rightly so as well, they're the ones you know that tend to communicate with you most. Other players will try and push their luck, and that's sort of creeping in, and we sort of you know need to make sure that we. We keep that at uh, at a distance in, yeah. in one sense, but the captains are the ones who tend to sort of speak to you and sort of challenge you in in a good way, you know, in, in asking the question that needs to be asked on behalf of his team or asking him, look, you know, we, we feel that the, they're closing the gap in the line out, and we we're not getting you know good clean ball from him because we feel the gap is not what it should be, yeah. and then you will sort of you know have a look at the next line out, and that's what a captain's job is. Um, Probably one of the most challenging captains was, was Lawrence Delalio. Again, in, in a good way, you know, yeah. a great player, great captain, and a great ambassador for the game as well. And um, when I was sort of starting to referee those big European Cup games, you know, he was in his in his pomp and his prime then, and I was a young kid on the block, and um, you know, he used to really sort of challenge you. You know, <laughs> this, you know, this this big name was actually towering over you and asking yeah. you a question, and you know, and, and you were a new referee on the block, so. Uh, yeah. But challenging, not in a disrespectful way, but in a way that a good captain should be. You know, mm. and um, every other, you know, every captain have this different style. You know, Sam Warburton 
was a very quiet captain, but still had a huge presence, even though he was quiet. Mm. Uh, Alan Wynne Jones, for example, then would be you know a bit more in Delalio mode, where he'd be towering over you <laughs> and be sort of up in your face a little bit yeah. more, but again in a in a respectful way. So you know they all had their strengths, but in in, in different way. Um, Ryan Jones was a very good captain. Um, I think he was underrated by a lot of people as a captain he was a really good leader for Wales and, yeah. and for the Ospreys as well you know he had a very sort of presence about him but a nice way about him as well and um, and you, you know you McCaws and, and, and all these people as well you know and Martin mm. Johnson I refereed once you know he's coming towards the end of his career and, and he was a huge presence as well and um, a lot of people said that he was very difficult as a captain I didn't really see that because I refereed them against Treviso in the European Cup I think it was and you know they, they in Leicester and I think they put 50 or 60 points on Treviso I think it was Treviso or Calvisano Calvisano it was back then mm. and they put 50 60 points on them so you know you didn't really need to you get need to, in yeah. my face <laughs> in that day but uh, no I, I've got to say you know in all honesty, of all the rugby captains and players, you know, yes, you know, they're challenging and, and, and that is their job and role as a captain, but uh, in the most, they're all very, very respectful, really, you know. Obviously, we see that referees are quite easy to, quite easy targets sometimes uh, for for pundits and fans, etc. What, what would you say is perhaps the most difficult law to enforce on a rugby field? Like quite, it's quite a broad yeah, the, question. It, it, um, the contact area, probably. Um, the, the scrums of the contact area can be very difficult. Uh, mm. But with experience, you know, you, you have you have more time to look at what goes on in the scrum. So if the scrums are a problem, you, you've got a bit more time in setting the scrum up and identifying who's pushing early, the height of the scrum, the binding, the leg positions, and... You know, and everything. You know, so you you've got a bit more time to yourself to look at those things, and then yeah. you can, with experience from refing for many years, you can identify the problems. Whereas the contact here, everything happens so quick like that. You know, no matter how much you've been refereeing, how much experience you have, everything happens so quick. It happens so quick. Sometimes you're just thinking the ball is gone. What the hell happened there? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. the contact error in one sense is is the difficult part to referee. But if you set your standards out and, um, you know. The priority in, in the contact of a referee is you move the tackler, you know, get him out of the way so the ball's available and then keep players on their feet, the ball comes back and there's a bit of structure to it. You know, mm. if you don't referee that and allow it to become a mess and people are off their feet, hands are coming in, they're coming in from everywhere, then you make it very difficult for yourself to referee. So there are things you can do to make that area as easy as you can to referee, but it happens so quick. Sometimes it's it's just, you know, impossible to see clearly exactly what went on in that contact was just so quick um, and another area of the game which is difficult to referee is a bit better now because we have refereed it better we've refereed what the actual law is and that is the mall you know mm. where, where players come from the mall you all of a sudden you've got 16 players who's come from where was the ball passed to the back legally what people blocking were setting up were the defenders joining from the right side were the attacking <laughs> team who took it down it all goes down which one took it down so many things to go <clears throat> on in the mall the mall is can be a very difficult area to referee as well but um, mm. the contact area probably because everything happens so quick well, what have you made of in the last few years we've seen um, referees mics introduced on television and now they're, they're quite regular now if we're watching on the on the TV we can all hear most of the time what you're saying to the players sometimes what they're saying to you what, what, do you, what have you made of this sort of introduction of referees mics because it makes it easy now for the rest of us to sort of really hone in on what you're saying and, it, and have a go. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it, it allows us to understand. Yeah. It, it, I. I like. I think the, the first thing there's a couple of things probably here is you know I, I'm you see people say sometimes oh the you know, referee should be seen and not heard he should be anonymous in the game and, and I agree with that mm. you know you're not the most important part of that game you're not the most important person on that field. Far from it. The, rep, the players are, um, and once the referee starts thinking he's the most important person on the pitch, then it's time to to pack up that whistle and finish. Yeah. But there are circumstances now that make you part of that game, whether people like it or not, or whether I like it myself or not. You know, when they bought in the communication where everybody hears what the referee says, you are now your voice is becoming a recognizable voice to people watching rugby because they can hear what you're saying. I, I didn't choose. Us as referees didn't say, we want to wear this mic so people can hear us. 
it was the you know the media that the the tv companies and the people who wanted to grow the game globally and trying to get people to understand what was going on in the complex game of rugby the traditional non-rugby supporters to try and get them to understand the game so they could become fans of the game so that's why it was bought in it was bought in by us as referees mm. and now you know when you refereed 25 years ago there'll be what one or two games three games live of the old five nations yeah. on the telly Every single game, professional game, is, is live on telly now. So every game I referee every week is live on television. So between they're going to see you every weekend on the television, they're going to hear you every weekend, so you are going to become, whether we like it or not now, a familiar face. Yeah. And um, I think it's a good thing that the mic is there because it does explain decisions and it helps grow the game and people understand what's going on and the majority of people will tell you that, that that's a good thing and, and I would agree with that um, but then when people tell, say to me oh you know you, you like the sound of your own voice I don't you know I'd love to be the background in the game but the circumstances of the game now don't allow that for the ref mic because you're live on telly every, every week um, mm. and like I I just referee the game the way that I see it. I, I do not, honestly do not go out in that field and think, I'm going to say this today. I'm going to say that today. But there's some referees are trying to do that and they're getting found out because it doesn't come natural to them. Yeah. I go out in that field and I just referee. I'll just say it as it is. Without being disrespectful, without making fun of any player who makes a mistake. Because once you do that, then you're going to lose respect of, of the players and of the game. And I certainly don't do that. And, and yes, over the years... I've said something in the game and all of a sudden it's all over social media, mm. all over, over the, the media that something is, oh, this is great, you know, it's very funny. And, and someone's saying, well, that's not really funny. You know, I just, I just said what happened in the game. So I don't do it to make any headlines. I don't prepare any one-liners or nothing like that. And, uh, you know, I had, I had a bit of, well, I had a stick of one person on the weekend um, saying that I was saying witty things as a put down to players. And I don't. I, what I said in the weekend in the Munster Glasgow game for me was certainly not disrespectful and to me it, it even wasn't witty mm. you know when people say that was witty really um all i said when the captain of munster asked me why aren't we going back for the scrum and the reason why we didn't go back on the scrum for the advantage was because the pass was a poor pass a bad pass by them and that's not making fun of the pass it just was a bad pass it didn't go to hand it went straight into touch yeah. so there's no other way to describe it than a bad pass yeah um so because the pass was bad and it wasn't under any undue pressure from the opposition, so it is your own mistake, yeah. advantage is over. Now, if the opposition had been up on them and he's got to force this pass to get it away and it goes into touch and becomes a, a, a bad pass, if you like, then advantage would not be over. So yeah. then you would have gone back for the scrum. So all you do is explain, look, because it was a bad pass for you under no pressure, advantage is over. Yeah. And, and is that witty? Is that disrespectful? come off it so. uh, certainly and I certainly wasn't prepared you know I didn't go on the field thinking right I'm going to say this today if there's advantage yeah. over you know and um, so that's disappointing sometimes when some people sort of you know pick up and stuff like that and say you prepare things and saying you're saying things are disrespectful they're, they're not you know we, you know that, that's the, that's the, the kind of person I am I just say it as it is you know I, I was you know I, I've been brought up um, I, I'd like to think I'm, I'm a humorous person um and that's the way I am. So I'm not preparing anything out on that field. And there's a time and place. You'll never see me making a joke or smiling if I send a player to the bin or penalising a player. You'll never see me penalising a player and making fun out of it. Because that's mm. wrong. Yeah. That's not right. You don't smile when you send somebody off. You don't smile when you give a penalty and then that team's just given away three points. And it was the same with the ball boy incident out in Leinster. Um, um, well, I wouldn't be surprised if some people said now that I prepared that. <laughs> it, you know, there's a time and place for it. It's if that game, the Scarlet Leinster game, would have been niggly, I'd had a yellow card as somebody, there'd be some controversial decisions. I probably wouldn't have got the yellow card out for the ball boy because I knew the temperature of the game. In my experience in refereeing games all this year, you know what the temper is. You know how to deal with things, how to say things, and to communicate. And, and when you need to be firm, when you need to have a little smile, you know when to do it. And that is very, very important, I think. And if there had been a few controversial things in that Leinster game or a yellow card given, which could have been deemed to be harsh or, or even wrong, maybe, then for me to get a yellow card out to the ball boy and people have said, oh, what the hell is he doing? Making joke now of this after he's just wrongly yellow carded somebody. And they'd be right to do that. Mm. And I probably wouldn't have done that then. 
So you need to know when to do these things, you know. And I certainly don't prepare it. And, and with that ball boy thing, I just I just reacted the way that I would react in 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 any day really if something like that happened. It would make a sort of a smile about it, you know. And then, yeah. and I think that's important that we don't we don't lose that from the game. You don't go out there t- to make the jokes and to crack the jokes. That's not what I'm there to do. I'm there to referee a game of rugby. Nothing more, and certainly nothing less. But on occasions when you say something, and people think it's funny. And you know, and so be it. But it's certainly not prepared, and it's certainly not at the expense of anybody on that field. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, from based on the the sort of reactions that we get um, from fans, it, I, I can say quite conclusively that most of the reaction is positive to the things you do. There's a lot of support out there. So, especially from our point of view, I don't think anyone here would be calling for you to change how you officiate games. Because, well, it, it come on to the next point now. A lot of the t- a few of the games you refereed. Um, a few years ago were quite high scoring I think I've heard you say before that your favourite game was South Africa against New Zealand um, I can't quite remember the score but I remember reading quotes from you about how far you had to run and things like that in that game because it was so open I don't think that from a personal point of view I don't think it's a coincidence that you referee games that are high scoring and, and that flow quite nicely but what what are your memories of, of that game in South Africa? Yeah I've you, you you may have a point that it's not a coincidence. Maybe I I don't know, but but at the end of the day, the, the players make the game. Mm. There is no doubt about that. We had a wonderful and probably the best World Cup we we've ever had. But that was down to the attitude of of the players, the coaches, and one thing that people probably overlooked was the weather. You know, the weather was was great as well. You look at September October, we get some great rugby. And then over winter, you get the sort of closer games, the stop-start type of games. And now the weather's better again. We're getting more high-scoring games. So the weather plays a huge part as well in it. Mm. Um, but the players make the game. There is no doubt about that whatsoever. You've got two positive teams who go out there and want to play rugby. You're going to have a great game of rugby, or you should have. So the referee plays a small part in it, you know, a very small part, but yet again, a small part in it by knowing when to blow the whistle, when knowing not to blow it to help the flow of the game, to communicate and prevent infringements without disadvantaging any side. And, and that ability comes with, with experience. So, look, I have been very lucky and very fortunate that, that some of those games I've refereed, a lot of people say, are the greatest game of rugby they've ever seen. Mm. That wasn't down to me. You know, I, I played a little part in it in allowing them to play. Um, and knowing where not to blow the whistle, but all the credit of that goes to the players and, and, and nobody else. And and it's great to be involved in those type of games as well because it makes the refereeing, you know, much much easier because they want to get on and play, and then you can just can just go with them, you know, and you just sort of set the boundaries out of when you blow the whistle and and when you're not. But um, you know, yes, don't get me wrong. You know, I, I'd like to think that I play a, a small part in in helping them produce that spectacle. Yeah. Um, but far, far from, I'm not the one who makes those games. The, the players makes the game. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, As we've touched on, you, you refereed the 2015 Rugby World Cup final. Am I right in saying that's probably the pinnacle of your career? Yes, I think it would have to be. You know, I think it's the pinnacle of anybody's career, I think. There are always moments in, in your life off the field, uh, you know, and, and outside sport that will mean something special and will be the highlight of, of your life maybe when you look back at things. And the same in, in refereeing um, as well is when you look back at things that are things that are highlights, you know, your first Six Nations game, your first European Cup game, refereeing in a 12 game, um, you know, in Pencord a few years ago after refereeing uh, Leicester, Ulster on a Saturday night to coming back to Pen, uh, Pencord then to ref this and the 12s cup game against um, Cumbran then on the Sunday and going to the changing rooms and seeing the kids' faces just <laughs> light up and sort of surprised, you know, that you were there refing the game and then one of them saying, uh, uh, I hope you're going to ref this game better today than you did last <laughs> night. Um, and that's, you know, that's something special. That's something yeah. I'll never forget. You know, I'll remember that moment in the changing rooms in Pencord when my kid says that as much as I referee the World Cup final. Yeah. But, yeah, there is no doubt, you know, that the pinnacle of anybody is... Is the World Cup final when you get when you get appointed at that World Cup final? You know you are the best mm. in the world, um, and I don't like saying this. You know that I am the best in the world, and I've never said this. But you do realise then what you're appointed to the biggest game in in world rugby in a four-year circle. Then you are the best in the world, unless sometimes 
the best in the world may not referee it because their teams are in it. But, you know, in 2015, you know, I was appointed to that because in the eyes of the people that were making decisions, I, I was the best referee in the world. Mm. And, and that means you're at the pinnacle of of your career then and and really at the top of your game. So, you know, that that was something special. And as I said, I was very fortunate to be part of the best Rugby World Cup that's been. Um, the weather helped teams played some wonderful rugby uh, and also as well it was on the same time zone because yeah. you know money carry where I was bought up um, the working was club was like a carnival week there was something <laughs> on every night the club was packed every week my dad was over the club every my, my family friends the club was was packed on Saturday all the club was packed yeah. they were even outside which was unbelievable you know yeah. and the banners up in the village and stuff as well and you know if that had been half a state in the morning the final because the game is in the southern hemisphere somewhere then it wouldn't have been the same especially yeah. for them watching the game so I was very very fortunate and uh, I just wish really that um, I wish my mum would have been still alive to you know to, to see that um and a bit of me wishes as well that, that I could have been zoomed from Twickenham sometime in that game for a couple of seconds into Money Carry Club just to see um, what it was like for everybody in that club. Um, and I said earlier, you know, and um, I get quite emotional when I think about it, you know, when I said earlier about the most important people on that pitch are the players, and I mean that, but for everybody in Money Carry Club that day, they were all there, you know, yeah. Wales weren't in the final, they were all there supporting me as a referee and, um, and that was something um, something quite special really yeah and there's there's a lot of chat at the moment obviously because there's a big summer coming up in terms of uh, the Lions do you ever am I right in saying you, you can't be involved in, in Lions matches you would never referee a Lions test match no but yeah. I did referee a Lions against the Southern Kings back in 2009 in South Africa and that would be another highlight as well because yeah. uh, only three of us have ever done that uh, Alan Roland myself and Wayne Barnes and that was a wonderful experience, you know, refing uh, a Lions. It was a midweek task, uh, midweek game, but it was a wonderful experience. Um, and um, part of the participation agreement this year in New Zealand that all the games, uh, including the um, provincial games, are done by non-neutral referees. So in the past, the midweek games would have been done by New Zealand referees or other referees from other countries. But yeah. this year, they're all done by, by neutral referees. Yeah. Um, so nobody from New Zealand and nobody from the the British uh, Lions countries will be refereeing those games. Mm. So um, I was very, very fortunate, really, you know, to, to get that opportunity, which maybe nobody else will get from now on. You know, myself, yeah. um, Alan Roland and Wayne Barnes, you were very, very fortunate. And that was a wonderful experience um, to referee that, 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 that game. It wasn't the greatest of games, it was a tough game to referee, um, but it was, was a great experience. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, in the web chat you did with us earlier, somebody mentioned if you've, whether or not you've started looking towards what you might do when you decide to hang up the whistle. Can you just tell us whether you've started making any plans for... Retiring, not that we uh, are <laughs> trying to shove you out the door, but... Uh... Um, I haven't really, no, to be honest with you, I haven't. I realise that, you know, there's a lot less time left now than there's been. Um, um, the Welsh Rugby Union, um, you know, I owe a lot to for, you know, being supportive for me, not only since I started refereeing and since I started being employed as a professional referee, but supporting me through some difficult times in my life as well. And I owe a hell of a lot to the Welsh Rugby Union for that and support me through this day, you know, and uh, and uh, to, you know, to, to Martin Phillips, the CEO now, and Geraint John and stuff as well, who, you know, who, who gave me a contract for, for four years after the last World Cup, which will take me to... To June the first, twenty twenty, and and the plan at the moment is, you know, to go to the next World Cup in in twenty nineteen, and then the end of that season, twenty twenty, will will probably call it a day. Um, who knows? There may be another year left after that, but I don't know. You know, I'll be forty eight, nearly going on to forty nine by that time mm. comes, and that probably will be the right time then. I think to sort of hopefully finish at at, at the top. I hope. Um, but there's you know there's there's three years before that, so a lot of things can happen before then. So. I haven't really thought much about it, to to be honest. You know, I enjoy doing. So I do some sort of after dinner speaking and stuff like that now, which yeah. I enjoy doing. And it switches you off from the rugby and do some of the Jonathan show and some yeah. TV work, which I enjoy as well. Which is just helps you switch off from the pressures of refereeing at the very top of, of the game, really. Mm. Um, so I'd like to think I'd continue to do something like that. Um, 
I've been very, very fortunate to get a hell of a lot out of rugby. Um, and I owe more to rugby than rugby will ever, ever owe to me. Uh, and there is no doubt that I will put something back into rugby, whether it will be in a, in, in a full-time role capacity as a referee, coach, manager, whatever it may be within the Welsh Rugby Union or World Rugby or whatever opportunities come along, who knows. Uh, it may just be doing some coaching with some young referees in Wales, but I certainly will be putting something back, whether it be a part-time, full-time role or just even uh, voluntary in my own time. I certainly will be putting something back into rugby and into refereeing. There's no doubt about that. And and even when I finish, you know, at 2020 uh, as a professional referee, um, I will certainly still be refereeing some local school games and some youth games and community games and stuff like that for for a year or two after that. I, I hope if the body is is, is still going by mm. by then. So, um, but I haven't really sort of thought much about it. But um, um, thanks for the uh, the advice. I will start. <laughs> I will start thinking about uh, it. Like I said, hopefully you've got a good good few more years yet. But also the next one up for you now is Judgment Day, 150th Pro 12 Celtic League match. Massive congratulations on that and. Uh, Thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks thanks very much. Okay then, chaps. So uh, let's look at the rugby. Um, first game up, Cardiff Blues against Ospreys. So I will come to you first, uh, quarter to three on uh, Saturday at the big house over the road. Um, teams in very different frames of mind heading into this game. Blues probably a little bit more positive after a good performance out in Ulster. Ospreys on the back of three consecutive defeats, a little bit of... And I'm, you know, the fans are not happy at the moment down there, so it's going to be an interesting one. Yeah, I went to the Blues press conference this week, and you could sense they they might just have a feeling that they're playing the Ospreys at quite a good time. Um, the Blues have got nothing to lose. I mean, their options of getting into the Champions Cup automatically have gone. They know already they're going to be playing a Champions Cup playoff at the end of the season. So they can actually be reasonably relaxed going into these last few games and try and build a bit of form. And there certainly was form there against Ulster at the weekend, you know. Um, that was, I thought, arguably one of their best performances, if not their best performance, singularly of, of the season. You know, Certainly from an attacking perspective, they gave Ulster a heck of a lot of problems. The, the two centres, Aki, uh, Halaholo and um, Ray Lilo, I think they made 18 clean breaks between them, or beat 18 defenders. And Gareth Anscombe showed you just what he can do when he's on song with his vision and his range of passing. And so they, they offered a lot. There's still issues defensively. But if they play like that against the Ospreys, they've got a chance because the Ospreys at the moment, and I don't you agree, but they're stuttering a bit, aren't they? Are they vulnerable? Yeah, of course they're vulnerable because their recent results uh, indicate that. You know, they uh, lost last week. They lost the uh, week before to... Uh, uh, well, and they lost three in a row, haven't they? Because they also lost out in Italy as well against uh, Treviso. So they they have been in a bit of a meltdown these uh, last uh, few weeks. Um, they got a fantastic record against the Blues, and we saw early in the season Blues played well early on and, and seemed to be in charge. And the Ospreys scored a try, and the Blues pressed the self-destruct button. It was just one-way traffic. However, I don't think that'll happen this weekend because the key man who's missing for being missing for the Ospreys, I think he says he. It's been hugely negative for him as Alan Wynne Jones. Yeah, you know, as we said before, you cannot underestimate his effect on a team, and without him, their talisman at times they look a, a, a bit lost. And then you had last weekend Dan Bigger with his cut, the knock to the head, and everything about that. You know, it was one of those uh, one of those games. So they've been on a bit of a downward uh, spiral. But they've got to win this game really if they want to qualify for the uh, playoffs. And he's spot on. They're missing two things at the moment. They're, last, they're missing composure, and they're missing Alan Wynne Jones. He's just such an inspirational figure, and he sets such standards. I think the one thing you'd say about this game. Is although the Blues did play well on Friday, they picked up four more injuries. You had Sam Warburton is out for six weeks, as we know. Blaine Scully's out. Felice took a bang. George Earls looked looked of quite a bad uh, knee injury. So what has always this season, as we've talked about, being a relatively slim squad, has been hit again. Speaking to Danny Wilson in the week, I think you know he he, he probably if you look at the side, the, the, the team they can put on the pitch will be competitive, but. They're going to have quite an inexperienced bench, and that may have a big factor. If you remember last year, Andy Osprey's bench made a big impact, didn't they? In the last 20 minutes, they came on strong. Reese Webb did well, and he'll come off the bench, I think, as well. I don't know. I was in New York at the time. Oh, your first, <laughs> actually, actually, do you know that? It's his first judgment day. First ju- I can't believe it. I fell off my chair when I was in the office. extraordinary. Yeah, now we've got the blues excuses out the way. I'm going to offer some on behalf of the Ospreys. The Ospreys, of course, are also decimated by 
by injuries. Key, another key man missing, and why the reason uh, their scrum has been poor recently is Dimitri Arep. He's missing. Dan Lydiot is missing. Alan Wynne Jones is missing. There's others out the equation as well. Yes, they might have a bit stronger squad and the Blues, but I don't buy this about the Blues got a weak squad. When I looked at the people on duty last week and the players on the bench, and when I look at some of the Blues guys who are out injured, like great prospects like uh, like uh, Dylan uh, Lewis, Dylan Lewis, etc. I don't actually think there's much wrong with that Blues squad. I just think you know if you look at the, what they've been doing in recent weeks. I mean, they've been injuries involved in it, but they had an, a 19-year-old and a 20-year-old coming off the bench as their props, and they're great talents, great prospects. But you probably wouldn't want to be putting them into high octane games like this. Yeah. But listen, you're as good as your squad, and you, and you just get on with it, don't you? Those guys are the third choice props because they're, they're, they're yeah. understudy, and they'd hope he'd come through this season. But uh, but injuries are derailed him with Dylan Lewis, yeah. and the uh, Lucid uh, understudy is a Wales international, who's a very good player, who's won European and a Riva Premiership titles in reskill who's, injured, who's yeah. been injured, but yeah. they hope he's going to be fit this week. This is it. I mean, the, both squads have their people missing. But you can only put on the field the ones you've got, and I think it's going to be a really, really close game. It's hard to call. The one thing I'd say is the Ospreys have got so much more to play for because if you look at their running and look at this, they've got Cardiff Blues this weekend. Then after that, they've got two playoff rivals: Ulster at home, the Scarlets away. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was they saying. need to win how many of those games to go through the they playoffs? They need to win a three-run. They need to win you don't think game. there's any scope for a no, slip I don't. up? No, they could easily they could win all three games, and they could or they could lose all three. They look that tight. Uh, tight what do you think will me. happen? It's this weekend's pivotal. They gotta beat the Blues. They lose against the Blues this weekend. I don't think they qualify for the playoffs. <sighs> we come Ooh. on to the uh, the playoff race in a bit more detail in a bit. Um, but it, and isn't it? You look at the sides at the moment, and you just think, well, the front fives are going to cancel each other out, in my opinion. I don't think either of them are fantastic at the moment uh, in the front five. I think the Ospreys, as we've mentioned, have got a lot more to play for. You look at people like Reese Webb and Dan Bigger, if he plays, do you think those those pair are going to want to lose four games on a bounce? Well, of course they're not, so. because they're winners. No, right. no, no rugby player with and, not wants to lose four games on a bounce. They don't lose any game. And I think the Ospreys have got the Blues number. Well, that's that's why that's the the one thing, isn't it? They got him psychologically. So they I got don't. Him the I know. Is it a subconscious saying, thing? But I don't think this is difficult to call. Like this has got Osprey's win written all over it for me. You really think so? That's a, that is as strong I, as I've I, ever been on this podcast. I, but I really think the Osprey's. I'm will staggered. Win. I think those three marks, Matt. When I look at the problems the Osprey's have currently got, if you look at if you, if you look at that Stade Francais game right a couple of weeks ago in Europe, so much of what the Osprey's did in terms of their approach work was good. They were dominant against a good French side, but they just didn't have the clinical composure to finish things off. Again, last week, the game was there. for the, They were ahead going into latter stages. Again, had a kick to win it at the end. It just seems, whereas in that period, so November, December, January, I think they won 13 games in a row, Matt, they were a team with playing with bags of confidence, playing good rugby, forgotten how to lose. All of a sudden, that confidence looks a bit more fragile. And I know what you're saying about having the number on the Blues, but I think they will be a little bit edgy going into this game. Fair enough. Um, there's, there's been a bit of, like I mentioned earlier, a bit of disquiet on social media about from Ospreys fans about the way things have been going recently. And Steve Tandy's coming in for a lot of criticism at the moment. Do you think he's underachieving with the squad he's got? No. No? No, not really, no, because I don't think their squad is as great as some people have cracked it up to be this season. I still, still think they're in a building uh, uh, process, and I think they have got a lot of potential uh, for the for the future. So, uh, you know, I don't you know, most people, why are people's expectations so high for the Ospreys when they're not for the Blues? Because uh, I'd argue the um, Blues uh, first choice team is uh, as good as the uh, Ospreys the main first choice team. The, the main and I think we've, I think... At the start of the season, before the season kicked off, we all thought perhaps the Blues would be Wales' top region this season. Yeah, I think that what I've seen, the criticism of Tandy and the coaches seems to have revolved a lot of it around the Sam Davis issue. And the fact that, well, that for, is an issue, for the it? big games, they've been playing Sam Davis at fullback. Dan Evans moved from fullback, where he's so consistent to the wing with Dan Bigger at 10. When I've seen criticism, it tends to have revolved around that. Now, you can, you can always understand this kind of desire to get your, your best players on the pitch. They've also got limited options in the wings. They've got quite a lot of injuries in that area. But that does seem to rub people up the wrong way. Personally, my own view is that they're both outstanding outside halves. And I would say, right, you're playing and the other one's on the bench. 
Correct. What do you think? I uh, totally agree with you. And uh, if well. if I was going to play one of them at uh, fullback, I would play bigger fullback because I've seen bigger play fullback in the past with the Ospreys, and he is a cracking fullback. Or would you consider bigger at twelve, which I think is where he ended up last weekend? He came yeah, when he came well, back. Well, did he? he was did he come back at twelve? Did he stay at twelve? I don't think he stayed. I think initially he might have been, but I don't think he stayed at twelve. When then. he came on the field, he went in at twelve. Yeah, Who was playing I don't think fullback last, at that um, point? I think Dan Evans was, and was on a wing. Oh, no, you're testing me. Yeah, so I, I don't. I think Haberfield that was just a temporary thing when Might he came on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all is about playing bigger. At twelve, you, you know, he's got limited, very, very limited experience. At twelve, mm. you don't just put him at twelve when you've got Matarese. He's been brilliant at twelve for the yeah, Ospreys. The other thing is, Trainers, and you've got Ashley Beck. First half of the season, Dan Evans was arguably the Ospreys' best player. Yeah, he was. So why are you moving your best player from fullback to wing? To accommodate, put, in, put to, in one of your, to one of your outside halves to fullback. To accommodate Dan Bigger. So who would you start at 10? It's the bigger show, isn't it? The Ospreys, let's face facts. Who would you start at 10? Who would I start at 10? Yeah, this weekend. I would, in the light of Bigger's injuries and all last weekend, the knocks he took to the head and all, and the fact they on a bit of a losing run, I would actually probably start with uh, Sam Davis. After the Six Nations, though, I would have started with Bigger because I think the uh, Sam Davis is paying for this. He's paying for his lack of activity doing the uh, Six Nations. I think he was in the groove, which Mr. Garth Anscombe is in at the moment from playing regularly. And I think the, the um, not getting much game time or and just been training with Wales and all hasn't helped. You can see a few of the tackle bag boys are like that. Mm. They've got such good momentum coming into the Six Nations, haven't played, and they're now playing catch-up at a crucial mm. part of the season. Yeah, I suspect, I mind, I suspect... I suspect season. if Bigger's fit, he will be starting for the Ospreys. It would be a massive call by Tandy and go against nearly everything he's done in the past if he was to leave a fit Dan Bigger out of his start in 15. All right, and just uh, finally on the Blues side, do you not get a sense of frustration uh, when you see the way they can play um, like they did against Ulster and then yeah. you look back and you think, why are these guys so far down the table? They're in eighth at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken to Danny about it this week again, Danny Wilson, and, and um, his. T- I think Andy kind of disagrees with it, but his take is that when he's got something close to his strongest twenty-three or strongest fifteen on the field, he feels it can be competitive and take anyone on. His argument would be that during the season, key men have always tended to be missing from that, and as he points out, he's now lost three or four yeah, more. Yeah, but, but that's the same with every team. Yeah, I suppose the difference, I've got, I go back to this point, which I've made a few times, I think they decided last summer, they got X amount of cash available, he decided to go for a slimmer squad. More, he was more, quite right as well. More quality, squad more quality but going for a slimmer squad obviously makes you vulnerable to injuries. Mm. And I think that has happened, and he has suffered successive injuries during the season but I would go back to another thing I would say I think if you look at the Ospreys and the Blues and this point needs to be made there's a conveyor belt of talent that's come through from the Ospreys over the last five, six, seven, eight years and that's a credit to the Ospreys and their development process I spoke spoke to a couple of their high ranking committee men after the Stade Francais game and it was fascinating hearing about how much of a focus they place on development how much money they spend on it in that crucial period which is like 17 to 20 to make sure the talent comes through it hasn't happened that way. It has to be said with the Blues. If you look at it over the last five, six years, there hasn't been the same conveyable talent. It used to happen when Cardiff RFC were running a show. Now, if you look at it this year, Matt, you've got 16, I think it was, Cardiff Blues employees in the Wales Under-20 squad. Now, how many of those over the next three years will kick on to become Cardiff Blues regulars? Mm-hmm. I think if you had 16 Ospreys currently in that squad, you'd be pretty confident that at least half of them in three years' time will be regular squad members. So there is something there about how the Ospreys are able to really focus and drive their development talent through. And I think they are, in that sense, a model for everyone to look at. In fairness, the Scarlet's a good, good record as well. Scarlet's got a great record. But I think it's key. And when you're in a time when your budgets are limited, being able to develop your own is absolutely f- fundamental. You look at the Ospreys again now. Next season, the likes of Adam Beard and Owen Watkin, when mm. they're fit next mm. season, they'll be, and they're their own products, and they'll be absolutely crucial. And that's the template that all the regions need to be following through. Yeah, but Blue's problem might not have pitched at the moment, is, uh, which they hope to address for next season, is still the lock department. I know George Hill's got injuries. Uh, well, I don't know who they're going to play in the second row this weekend. They got Jared Hoata, and after that, they that's just James Down. James Down came on last week. Corley uh, Cook, Corley Cook can play there. And they've missed Josh Turnbull a lot this season. I think if people forget that. But next season they've got Franco van der Merwe coming in. Um, you know, who's in his thirties? Damien Welsh, who's in his mid thirties. Combine the age of seventy when he started playing for the Blues. Good move, bad move. 
Um, Van der Moos, good move. I don't think I would have bought it with Welsh. All right, then. Uh, let's move on to the the second game of Judgment Day. Dragons v Scarlets at quarter past five. Um, again, obviously, over at the Principality Stadium. What are you laughing for? Well, you know, it's a mismatch, isn't it? <laughs> would this be allowed in a lot of spots? I don't know. They're you not know. that bad. That's well, the Dragons, they are. They are. It's not a mismatch. Hang, hang on. Hang on, they got hammered last week at Zebra. So you so don't think they'll be remotely competitive this weekend? Well, have they been playing in recent times? They haven't won a game mines for that since the, uh, mid-January. How have they been playing in recent times? They will not be competitive in this game. They're going to have to find something from uh, from somewhere. There seems to be so much uh, so much of a malaise at the Dragons. The whole issue about their future, etc. Seems to me it's affecting, the, uh, it's affecting everybody and everything about the Dragons. Last weekend, their scrum, they had to take off their uh, props, Phil Price and Brock Harris before half-time. They were getting so stuffed in the scrum. Uh, the guys who came on, uh, Life uh, Brother Sam Hobbs, or... Um, as well, didn't make much of an impact. Their scr- uh, line out imploded. They were shocking, um, and you know that's been the story of their uh, recent performances. What do you think? Do you, so, do you, you think know, that's down a, to this the? This bonus point written all over the Scarlet. I'm interested there, but do you think that is down to the takeover issues, or has this been basically the case all season? I think that's affecting them. I think that's weighing heavily on the Dragons as an organisation, on uh, on everyone, but. Uh, the squad's not good enough. Uh, they need a they desperate one. Yeah, I mean, if uh, it's a shame Gavin Henson's not uh, uh, their new sign-in for next season. It's a shame he's not available for this weekend because what they need is a, a really good number outside half, someone experienced who can grab them by the grab the reins. As you all know, Matt, Andy and I often disagree on the importance of money <laughs> in rugby. I mean, we we've talked. Yeah, rec- the old default setting for Welsh rugby. Go we, on. We've talked recently. You'll know what I'm talking about. Just the, the other day, to you know, a Dragons um, high-ranking gentleman, we were asking him exactly what the playing budget is. I mean, you've talked to him about it. Mm. I think it's about the playing budget spent on the Dragons each year, about two point eight million. I think that's about right. Yeah, probably. Probably. Right. If you look at the Blues, it's about five four point nine five million. Scarlets, I think, is a bit more. Ospreys slightly different because of the number of NDCs they have, so that would probably be total about six million. I would have thought, right? If you take up the actual playing budget, so possibly you could argue that it's not surprising the Dragons are where they are. Well, they, yeah, they should be playing a lot better than they are. They got good don't you pay what? Don't you get what you pay for though? Funny upset. Well, how come Leicester City won a Premiership last season? <laughs> You're going to say Connaught next. No, good Connaught win. Because <laughs> if you want to talk about a team that's been decimated by injury this season, it's Connaught. Uh, so how did they win it then? So the argument, of course, money is does help a hell of a lot, but it's not everything. There's a bit more than that to build in a team, isn't there? I suppose my point was mainly that through, all the way through this, I don't Kinsley, the team, Kinsley with, Jones is fairly hamstrung, isn't he, by the, the quality he's got to work with. Is that a fair comment? Well, there's some good players at the Dragons, so I think they should be punch it. They should be doing better than they are. They should be performance, performance-wise, their edge should, you know, they should be performing better than they are. Mm. Uh, it's just their edge seem to drop almost uh, straight away in uh, in games. So I mean, the one thing you've got to have, I'm nearly doesn't matter if you if you amateur or what it's team spirit where's team spirit the dragons they've kind of become used to losing haven't they well they conditioned to it don't they so you mentioned there that uh, obviously the off-field problems appear to be having some form of effect on everyone at the, yeah at the I just region. think everyone's so negative where, where do we stand which, which to no, me that's... which to me just one final bit on that surprises me because really these players you think they'd be right up for it because really they should be playing for playing for their futures because if the Dragons, if it does go belly up there, with the uh, uh, Newport RFC turn down the, uh, the proposal from the WIU, the possibility <coughs> is, I would say, not possibility, probability is, the WIU will form a Gwent team for next season. Won't be playing at Ronnie Pareto, in all probability. So that would be a new company, which would mean that these players now would not be guaranteed employment. So as far as I'm concerned, really now, they are playing for their future employment Prospects, so they should be doing their utmost on the pitch to say, "Oh, I want a job somewhere." If you can uh, sort of sum it up as brief as possible, sorry, where where do we sort of stand on on this whole takeover issue now? Well, at least we know the date now. The vote, the big vote. I think it's Tuesday, May the seventh. Seventh, I think it was. Uh, that's Tuesday, May the seventh. And it's pretty simplistic in terms of what needs to happen for the WRU. um, Tuesday, May the ninth. Tuesday, May the 9th. Okay. For the WRU, complete takeover of the Dragons and the buyout of Rodney Parade to be approved and to go ahead. 
and then the Newport RFC shareholders, Newport RFC being the owners of Rodney Parade, those shareholders would have to vote 75% in favour of it happening. Now, will that happen? Andy and I were talking about it earlier, and it only takes maybe three or four or five very vociferous people on social media to sort of dictate what's going on. And there's going to be a lot of people with a vote because it's one vote per shareholder, not one vote per share. Which I find puzzling. Well, I think that's legal, isn't it? Well, I don't know. Anyway, it's a strange one. Anyway, so we've had lots of various people giving their different views. And we're seeing, I think, the kind of yes campaign, if you want to call it that, is being ratcheted up at the moment. I spoke to Alec James, um, who is a Dragons a board member. Tony Brown has spoken about it this week. They've put out a question and answer thing from the club, from the Dragons, explaining why, in their view, a yes is, is the only option. And then there are some very stark... Um, projections of what would happen if there's a no vote. You'd be talking about liquidation, uh, the receivers coming in, and probably a kind of fire sale of the land and the end of rugby at Rodney Parade. That's how it's been presented. And obviously Newport RFC are very concerned on their part from the fact that they don't see there's any long-term guarantee in terms of them being able to play at Rodney Parade. And they might be giving up their assets you know, out of, out of what they see as less than market value to the WIU. So you've got two, two very divided opinions and it's just fascinating to see what's going to happen at that vote because 75% is a big old chunk, isn't it? Mm. it is. You speak, you're from Gwentand, right? Do you think, this is, we were talking about this in the office today, do you think that a Gwent professional rugby team will ever work wherever it's based? Yeah, if it's done right and if it's successful. It's the same as anything. If it's successful, people will go and watch it. People just go and watch Pony Pool when they were you know, successful, you know, with the 70s, 80s, etc. People watched Newport when Gary Teichman, Shane Elworth, etc. All with all playing there. Of course, they will go and watch if it's if it's a successful team. I mean, Grant established success, so people are, are you know are desperate for it. We saw last weekend Ponypool they presented the trophy to them for winning the championship. It was a massive crowd up there, so it just shows what a bit of success can uh, can do for you. At the moment, all people are apathetic in Gwent towards pathetic, apathetic. All right, <laughs> to the dragons. And uh, Simon, you're a big man for what's it called? Social media, Twitter, or something. You're a big man. You're a big man on all that. Have you seen? I am my personally myself, but you would uh, perhaps know the answer to this. I am seeing like one rugby club in Gwent tweeting anything no, about the it, dragons. It's a very good point. You know, they don't care. Uh, you know, it's a two-way point. street with the dragons. I would say, if, if, like, if the WI, if it comes through, they need people on their board from clubs in Gwent. But the way people will come out if they're successful. And if ticket prices are reasonably valued, because someone said to me the other day, oh, you just turn up at Ronnie Parade and want a best seat in the house to watch a match. It's like £27. Yeah, pound. £25. Pounds. Yeah, well, £27 on a day, allegedly. Anyway, around 25 27 Pay £25 to watch that lot play. I wouldn't pay for it fiver. Be your plus. You've got to make some money, haven't you? Well, does that really make a money? But what I'm saying is the product is that bad on the pitch. Why would anyone pay to go and watch them? You've touched on a very valid point, though, because it's loss-making at the moment. It's, well, not, it's, money, not, it? it's not wiping its face. You know, and this is what a lot of people ask me. You say, how is an operation that's not making money suddenly going to make money when the WIU are involved? Because if the WIU involved, and I don't know what the friends in Newport Rugby Club are on about when they worried about the futures of the WIU got an ulterior motive, the WIU's mission statement, uh, and you know, really, is, uh, is owned by the clubs, isn't it? Is is to uh, is to uh, protect Welsh rugby and make it prosper. So the, they want to take over the Dragons and Ronnie Parade because they want it to be, <coughs> they want a team in Gwent in Newport and they want it to be successful. And if if they um, if it comes off, they uh, they do get reach a deal that. Uh, they, they won't want egg on their face at WIU. They will do their utmost to make them the best region. And, you know, players might feel that by playing for the Dragons will improve their uh, Welsh prospects. I'm sure they will in, uh, they will boast the coaching resources in uh, Gwent by directing staff there, etc., etc. And I'm sure they will make some more uh, uh, experienced signings. They could bring in two, you know, heavyweight foreigners to uh, to uh, help them along. So uh, if if the WIU can't do anything with the Dragons, turn them into something a lot more successful, uh, you know, it is time to pack in, isn't it? But the devil's advocate point on what you've said there is if it doesn't work and the RSA is up in two years' time and if after two years people aren't supporting it, there's no improvement, 
there's no guarantee that the union at that point wouldn't say, well, it hasn't worked, we tried our best, we're not going to run it anymore. Yeah, but, but, but then the point that the Newport fans would say, well, if that happens, where, where are we left then? We've yeah, got nowhere to play. Yeah, but the WIU, there's no way the WIU will allow this to fail if they take it over. They will not allow it to fail. It'd be like a, it'd be like a government, wouldn't it? Allowing something to fail. It just would not allow it to happen. They will ensure that the Dragons become a powerful uh, region. I hope you're right. Right. About five minutes ago, I asked you to explain that briefly, so I think we better move on with the show. Uh, there is a bit, obviously, a game to talk about here, and they're playing against the Scarlets uh, on Saturday afternoon. Again, they're in control of their own destiny in terms of the playoffs. They keep winning. Should be all right. Coming off the back of a good win uh, last weekend, Treviso were dreadful. Had yellow cards all over the shop. Didn't want to be, I think the bonus point was wrapped up after 20 minutes. Scarlet slapped them all over West Wales. Um, they're coming up uh, to Cardiff on Saturday, as you've already touched on. Bonus point. Bonus point win. Simple as that. Unless the Dragons find so even if the Dragons find something from somewhere and score a few tries themselves, I would expect the yeah, Scarlets to still get a uh, bonus point. Uh, big game for the Scarlets. They win this game. They're on course for the playoffs. Uh, if they lost this game, they could be in trouble because they got uh, Connaught away and any Ospreys that pack his Gallus, West Wales Derby could go either way. If, if results go their way on Judgment Day, yeah. uh, sorry, they could end up above the Ospreys. They and could they're, and they're two Ospreys. points behind them, aren't two they? Two points the Osprey, behind the Ospreys, mm. so if things go their way... Yeah, I mean, the, last weekend couldn't have gone much better for them because obviously the Blues... Uh, Denied Ulster the full points you know, with the draw out in Belfast. Uh, yeah, Ulster got a difficult running. And well. the Ospreys um, obviously lost. So the Scarlets now are back in that top four. Look, I think Andy's right. I think they will get the maximum. Whether the Ospreys win or lose, that's obviously something they can't control. They've then got Connaught away. I mean, and Connaught are similar to the Blues. They already know they're in the, the end of season playoffs. Not a huge amount to pay, although it is obviously their last home game of the season. But I think that's eminently winnable for the Scarlets. And then, yeah, mind you, that's uh, Connaught at home final difficult, home game season. Difficult. Pat Lamb's final game at home. It is, a lot of players will be leaving his final is, game at home. But so. I think it's winnable. But you know, we've then got the scenario. We're five fifty. You know, I think it's May the seventh, the Saturday. Shootout. It's a shootout with mm. the Scarlets against the Ospreys. And if it comes down to it, that it's a winner takes all. What kind of game will that be? Oof. Who do we fancy then? Do we fancy them both to make the playoffs? One of them? None of them? Ulster have got Munster away this weekend. I think that's and they got Leinster as well. They got Ulster, Ulster have got a really hard program. If they, lo- I think if Ulster, if the Scarlets and the Ospreys win this weekend, mm. and Ulster lose in Munster, which are both all three of them are very realistic things, then I think both Welsh teams will go through. Yeah, but if either Welsh team slips up and Ulster pull out a win, ooh. Mm. Right and usually I'm agreeing with Simon again it's yeah. a lot of agreement I think the top four will be at the end of the season it'll be Leinster, Munster, Osprey, Scarlets with the two Welsh teams away in Ireland in the semi-finals well as we've seen in the past that doesn't uh, always bode well does it <laughs> but, uh, I, don't I, think, I don't think any away teams ever won in a semi-final of Pro 12 no that's what I'm alluding to um, alright then like we mentioned before we finish Judgment Day's coming up let's get some predictions in uh, so I start with you, uh, prediction and sort of a points deficit. Yeah, I think it'll be, I think it could be quite a high-scoring game because the Blues will certainly look to play, and I mean the Ospreys will want to try and get a more of a clinical edge to the game. I think the Ospreys will win. I see it being a one-score game, twenty something to twenty something. Twenty something to twenty something. Yes. I'm going to be just different. Go for the Blues. Hang on a second. <laughs> huh? I'm tipping the blues. I'm tipping your boys, the blues. I, oh, sorry. I, 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 I'm tipping the uh, blues to win that game at 28 uh, 18. 28 18. Yeah. Um, I got the Ospreys by at least five as well. I've already made that clear. Um, second game, sir? I think a bonus point win for the Scarlets. They might get 25 30 points against probably 12 for the Dragons. Scarlets, 40 points. Uh, Dragons, 10 to 15. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm in agreement with you there as well. I, I don't think I can uh, bring myself to back the dragon. So um, that's that, chaps. We've just got the games to look forward to now. Um, as always, you can follow all the build-up. Hold on, Matt. Oh. There's one thing we haven't mentioned. Who's in the big yeah. finish? Then you can't forget your big, big finish. finish. There's one thing we haven't mentioned. Another big day. Let's give it a bit of publicity. Sunday, cup, well, final, cup finals day at the uh, uh, at the Principality Stadium. Which the boy will be covering. I'll be yeah, here, you have a good I'll old. Be I know you're going to be there. Three years in a row, son. Yeah, I'll be well on my done. perch all day. Well done. The yeah, obviously the show, the big showpiece game is uh, is Pontypridd against RGC fourteen or four from North Wales. 
massive match for North Wales rugby and regional rugby in general. They've been a credit this season or since they were started a few in 2012 when he started playing in 2012 and uh, they're coming here to face a Pony Preed match. Could be a great game. Both teams like to throw the ball about. That's got the potential to be a 40-30 game. And then you've got the backup games. A certain Shane Williams is turning out for Ammon United, his local village club, in their final uh, against uh, against Caffilly. We're also playing for a chap who unfortunately sadly Ian died. Phillips, who died just under a year ago. They're, they're Quite young they're, as well. You know, it'll be dedicated to him, win, lose or draw. That'll be an emotional occasion. And then in the other match, the middle match, you've got Estelavera, I think, against Penalta. Yeah. Great day for the clubs. Yeah. Penalta, you are a village club, former Stern Monarch. Penalta, at the moment, there's 11 coach loads of fans coming from our little club up the road. 11. Incredible turnout. Very well-supported club. We've got an excellent youth set up and uh, and it's going to be a great old uh, it should it's be a great day first time they've been there mind if I'm yeah, I know right they've I been know there that. a couple of times in recent years they yeah. club have got really good support on every Saturday afternoon alright then can I go into the big finish now finish go on then. of course we're building up to judgement day now we'll have all the team news on Friday and we'll have the live updates running all day on Saturday and of course all the reaction will be on Wales on